Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello everyone and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today I'm delighted to talk again to Imam Tom. You're welcome, sir. Welcome back. Thank you very much. It's always wonderful to be here. Great to have you on again. As, as you will know, Tom has kindly agreed to discuss the books that have made a significant difference to him intellectually. And today, Tom will continue to discuss an extremely important book, this one with the lovely cover, uh, The Impossible State, Islam, Politics and Modernity's Moral Predicament by Wa'al Halak. Um, now, this is part four of the series we are doing on blogging theology. And for those who don't know, uh, Halak is professor in the humanities at Columbia University, where he has been teaching ethics, law, and political thought since 2009. He is considered a leading scholar in the field of Islamic legal studies and has been described as one of the world's leading authorities on Islamic law. So over to you, sir. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, salatu rasulillah. Um, so, you know, if you picked up on the subtitle of the book, that's what we're going to be focusing on today. The subtitle, Islam, Politics and Modernity's Moral Predicament. So as uh, the author, Wa'al Halak, gets to his main thesis, um, morality is going to take a more and more of a center stage. Previously, you know, he's making the case that the modern state, first of all, is particular. It's not universal. Um, it's timely, it's, it's rooted in history, it's not trans-historical, and that this particular um, technology that we call, this particular arrangement that we call the modern state, is not only un-Islamic, it's anti-Islamic. Uh, it is not moral, for several reasons. And the previous chapters, the main point, or the main sort of evidence that he marshaled, or the argument that he marshaled to prove this point, was the way in which sovereignty is located in the modern state. And the way in which power is accumulated in the modern state. When it came to all types of pre-modern arrangements, not just the Sharia, but all pre-modern arrangements of law and morality, etc., there had been some sort of ultimate authority that existed above the state to which the state could be held accountable to. Yeah. Uh, however, sovereignty is, in the modern period, only invested in the state. There is no authority above the state and its law and thus there's absolutely no accountability with it. Um, mm. That was the first argument. Today, in chapter four, while Halak, he marshals two other arguments uh, to indicate or to demonstrate that the modern state is anti-Islamic and literally immoral. And the terms that he uses to refer to these two arguments, he, he describes the first as the rise of the legal. Mm. Uh, we're going to have to obviously get into what he means by that. And then the second is the rise of the political. Okay, so the ways in which these two categories are constituted, what they actually mean, according to Halak, is completely contrary uh, and antithetical to Islam and the Sharia. So beginning with the rise of the legal, um, Halak traces the differences in conceptions of knowledge through the pre-modern to the modern period, and then shows how that affected different conceptions of law, mm -hmm. hence the legal. Um, and how this basically completely 
gives us a legal system that is at odds with the Sharia. Mm. So the 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 developments or the um, devolutions, if we want to, uh, mm. that occurred in the conceptions of knowledge on either side of the Enlightenment, on either side of modernity, um, has to do with uh, what Halak refers to as the distinction. This is a main, main theme that he brings up in several of his books. When he refers to the distinction, he's talking about the separation between is and ought, the separation of what really exists versus what should be. Okay. Mm. And this is sort of, um, uh, we could say, the systematic marginalization of morality or the so separation. Just, yes. So just a pause on that, um, that twin description there is, and in the book, he puts capital I for is and a capital mm. over ought. So is is the empirical, this the state of reality em empirically we observe, or the state of play. Uh, the ought is the moral, the imperative, what should be the case, the ethical, and so on. And th and this split, he 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 thinks in the modern world between the is and the ought. So I just want to restress that because this binary is a key point that he makes in this chap chapter four, by the way, of uh, the book is what we're talking about today. Sorry. Yeah, and one way in which you can observe this, one of the many ways, is our concept of what history is and what history should be. So if you go to the Greeks and you go to uh, Herodotus and etc., right? Um, that we call it history. We even call you know uh, the, the fathers of history, and yet their histories looked nothing like our histories today. Mm -hmm. They were not concerned with mere fact. They yep. were not trying to describe, in the words of the famous uh, historian, what really happened. <laughs> they were more concerned with moral instruction. They yes. were more concerned with what the reader was going to come away with. Yeah. And the characters were even lionized or you know, demonized or etc. Yeah. And certain points were omitted and certain points were even maybe exaggerated in order to highlight this moral imperative. Okay, mm -hmm. so we call them histories as an anachronism. They're or they're really not histories in the modern sense of the word, which mm -hmm. is something that is strictly concerned with fact upon the philosophical assumption that that would even be possible in the first place to focus on fact without any sort of values or normative sort of moral concerns involved. Um, what are the shifts that are responsible for this change on either side of the Enlightenment or on either side of, of modernity? Uh, Halak points to the Enlightenment conception of the autonomous self. Right. Yes. He also points to the, the, the split between sovereign man uh, versus static nature. Many of the Enlightenment figures, they talk about nature as an object, uh, inert, brute, dumb even some of the enlightenment philosophers called it yeah. whereas man was considered to have agency that was one of the things that was distinguish human beings from uh nature mm. um and therefore according to the enlightenment model man was not just extracted from nature and separate from nature but actually lorded over it mm. actually able to act on it um as a subject acts on an object you know uh, manipulating right? In complete control. Obviously, we've lived now the consequences on the environment that this sort of shift has has uh, has brought about. The entire, and, and Halak does a great job bringing in the entire concept of natural resources, right? You've probably remember in grade school seeing these maps of 
the Mesopotamian civilization and this civilization with the little icon or symbol of corn over here and the little symbol of tin over here and whatnot, right? The entire logic or philosophy behind this rendering is that there are things and the earth and it's, they are things that are there for human use and manipulation. And somebody could say, well, wait a second, we have that in Islam, Allah created everything for us and that's true. However, the big difference, and this is the point here, is that in Islam, we don't have absolute sovereign ownership over these things. That exactly. our relationship to them is rather a stewardship, exactly. one that is an is a uh, with sort of expected values and ways and procedures and ways of relating that are built into the relationship because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the only one that has complete and absolute dominion and control. Um, ours is derivative and downstream and therefore is imbued with moral concerns. Yeah, How to be also, although what you're saying, I think it's absolutely right. Uh, in Christianity, with the biblical uh, narrative, Genesis chapter one, cha chapter two, you also get the sense of stewardship of the creation that mankind, Adam and Eve, were given stewardship. No, the creation wasn't there for us to ruthlessly exploit as an object, but part of God's good creation that we as moral agents were meant to benefit from, but also cultivate and so on. So this is not a uniquely Islamic, and you're not saying this, of course, it's not a uniquely Islamic uh, understanding, but it, ironically in the West, it's been lost in the citadel of um, Christianity is precisely there or here mm -hmm. uh, that this insight has gone since the Enlightenment, um, so which is very tragic. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point to think about the ways in which Christianity has been modernized, and we mean that in a uh, lamentable sense, right? Because now you have Christian arguments being levied forth or Christian sources being marshaled or conscripted in order to supposedly prove the same sort of modern uh, imperative of manipulating and abusing the natural world and these sorts of things. That's a very modern phenomenon, even if it's attempting to um, marshal the Christian tradition to that end. Right? This is a very, very enlightenment uh, me yeah. mentality and an enlightenment attitude. So this is not just an ontological sort of reality, which means you know how we are and the nature of our relationship, but it's also an epistemic one when it comes to our ways of knowing. Right? And this is part of why the whole history example is significant because knowing the act of learning or studying about anything under this sort of value system, the enlightenment value system, the distinction between is and ought, it's no longer about self-transformation. It's about transforming the world outside of you. It's about control. Knowing is to control something. And so the entire project of studying and of learning and of producing knowledge, and this gets us into Foucault and you know, knowledge is power in a way that most people don't even realize when they say that, that cliche. Knowledge is power in the sense that to know these days, once you've cleaved off morality and, mor and moral concerns from your knowing, then what's left is manipulation and control. So knowledge previously used to be about the transformation of the self. Now, now knowledge is about transforming the world outside of you, power and domination. And if you're looking for some sort of evidence from uh, you know, the Islamic tradition as to what's very, very different about these two paradigms, there's the, the dua that the Prophet used to make where he said, Allahumma alimna ma yanfa'una wa anfa'na bima alamtana wa zidna ilman. And there's very uh, profound lessons in this dua because he says first, Oh Allah, teach us what benefits. 
Okay, um, so there you have it. There is already implicitly there a bifurcation between knowledge that benefits and knowledge that does not benefit. Okay, mm. some knowledge is inherently perhaps harmful, even mm. right. Who needs to know how to split the atom? What has it really done for us? Just as a possible example of what that might look like. Then after that, he says, and benefit us by that which you taught us. Okay, which is a recognition that even knowledge that is inherently beneficial, if it's used improperly, might become detrimental. It might actually lose its benefit. So now there's sort of that active agency where you not only have to pursue knowledge that is beneficial and leave behind knowledge that is not beneficial, even detrimental, that you have to interact with it in a moral way. Mm -hmm. And if you don't interact with it in a moral way, it will actually be a detriment to you and a hindrance to you as opposed to something that's good. And only after that did the Prophet ﷺ said, and then increase us in knowledge. Mm -hmm. So quality over quantity. We're supposed to get the quality correct first before we ask for an, a certain amount of knowledge. We could say that the modern idea of knowledge is completely the reverse. Um, yeah. We're supposed to heap up and accumulate knowledge on things and not even let it uh, affect ourselves, right? Hidden in that distinction between is and ought, another way to, to say it or to think about it is the separation of fact from value, right? Mm -hmm. So this this gives rise to a couple of different things. One of them is the pretense of objectivity, okay? Mm -hmm. We have in science and in history, the historical critical method being a chief culprit here, this sort of attitude that if we're only concerned about the facts and we sideline all moral concerns, then we are being objective. We are being neutral. We are dealing with things in a cool, level-headed manner without realizing that this itself is a moral statement and a moral claim and a moral position. And it's a particular one rooted in a particular European Enlightenment framework of a particular autonomous self that is very antagonistic towards a sovereign God and everything that comes with that. Which is why, which is why you have people, if people need a, a little bit more boots on the ground analogy or example or, or illustration of what this looks like, you have people that study Islamic studies Islamic yeah. studies departments, yeah. right? They, um, you know, study the Quran. They study the Hadith. They study the Sirah. They study the Fiqh. And they have even impressive knowledge of manuscripts and, and impressive knowledge of Arabic. And yet. And yet. Where is their belief? They're what completely, completely untransformed by it. This whole completely thing untransformed. to be calling us to the good. Uh, yes. Calling us away from evil. Uh, bringing us into contact, connection with our creator. None of that happens. They have this forensic positivist epistemology, which looks at verticomers facts, which mm -hmm. of course is a artificial cultural construct, as you've said, because it comes from a post enlightenment context. The whole thing really looks very strange. Yes, and so this is an error of the first order, and in fact, it's a moral transgression. You yes. know, I, I recently got into um, you know a little bit of a, a back and forth with one of your other guests, and you know, I had kind of criticized the historical method for this exact thing. You know, and I was saying that, like that, with the historical critical method, it has pretensions to objectivity, okay? And there are philosophical assumptions beneath or undergirding the historical critical method um, yes. that, if we evaluated them, okay, would first of all be subject to debate and not self-evident at all. And second, that the majority of practitioners of this method are completely unaware of. They believe that they're doing objective history. 
they believe yeah. that they are concerned with only the facts. I mean, but to be clear, so it's going off sub subject because um, it's such an interesting point you're making. Um, th th this book uh, called uh, the Quran: uh, A Historical Critical Introduction by Nikolai Sinai. <laughs> Now, he's a professor uh, of uh, studies at Oxford University. He's a very distinguished German scholar who now resides in Oxford. I mention him, and this is a good book, um, but, but written um, from the perspective of the HCM, is that um, at the beginning, the in the introduction, the very first section is what is the historical critical method. Now, he is very clear about the philosophical assumptions that go into this HCM, uh, as, as he calls it. Um, and uh, uh, some of these assumptions, I would argue, he doesn't argue, but I would argue, are, are completely not incompatible with any Islamic perspective. But um, I, I credit him at least, even though he personally supports the historical method, for being honest in the presentation of the assumptions that underlie the methodology of his investigation of the Quran. So we know what kind of direction he's going into and what he's not going to say, shall mm -hmm. we say. Um, so I, I'm not dissing him. I'm simply saying he is honest about it and we know what he's about. But some, not all scholars are like this and they just simply assume it's the natural methodology we should all use. And it ain't. Right. Well, I'll go ahead and, and respectfully diss him because my point, you know, which... <laughs> no, I wouldn't be a guest on the channel. Don't diss him. No, 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 no. I mean, in, I, I'm tongue in cheek. Like, it's not 100%. But, but um, you know, right. so the pushback that I receive is like, no, no, no point to this particular individual and others like him that admit, okay, that they understand the philosophical sort of, uh, you know, undergirding of their assumptions and their method and things like that. But my retort would be, well, then that's perhaps even worse because you're aware of it. And yet you have a understanding of knowledge that has not transformed your life. Right. This is, you know, you can take your descriptive power and, you know, what does your descriptive power do for you at the end of the day? If your knowledge is not benefiting your soul if you have separated moral concerns from fact and you think that you're just, okay, well, you're aware that you're doing the separation, maybe half the battle, but this is a particular separation that should not be, right? That's that's the the sort no, of I, Islamic I normative claim. No, right? I, I, I'm going to mention one of them. But that guy, this, this is a serious danger of going off, off track, and it's my fault. But the, the principle of analogy is the principle of historical analogy. It's part of the yeah. HCM. I'm looking at now page... Uh, three of the introduction of Nicholas Sonnen's book, the assumption that past ages of history were constrained by the same natural laws as the present age, that the moral intellectual abilities of human agents in the past were not radically different from ours, and that the behavior of past agents, like that of contemporary ones, is at least partly explicable by recourse to certain social and economic factors. Now, without going into this, I mean, what this means is, by the principle analogy, today we don't have prophets who foretell the future, who bring revelation to mankind. We just don't. You agree with that. We all agree on that. Mm. Therefore, by the principle analogy, we didn't actually in the past either. because I mean, we don't have miracles today, allegedly. So therefore, we didn't have miracles in the 7th, 8th centuries either. So you know, now becomes normative and, and, and paradigmatic for every preceding a historical epoch and that of course is toxic when it comes to an islamic worldview because of course there are times when god sent prophets and miracles happened regardless if they happen today or not mm -hmm. so, uh, and so history becomes flattened out in a meta-narrative that is purely 
what the West conceives of it happening today. And, and this, of course, is a built-in assumption, according to one of the world's leading experts, of the historical critical method. And that's not the only problem in this methodology. There are other ones as well. But I do stress there's much of value in Nicola Sinai's book. Of course. Um, which uh, I've got friends of mine who are studying at Oxford at postgraduate level who know him, and Muslims who also testify that he has much of value, even though everything you've said, Tom, I agree with as well. <laughs> let me let me put a positive spin on it. If you're if you're astute enough to realize the philosophical underpinnings of your paradigm, okay, oh. then you should also interrogate um, the separation between fact and value that is at the base of them. Right. Because if one is claiming that they there is a certain descriptive power that is useful, instrumentally useful to this historical critical method or whatever method that we're, we're using that's based off of this distinction between fact and value. My pushback is that you are re-entrenching a paradigm of knowledge or an episteme that separates between fact and value that is an inherently antagonistic to Islam. And so if you're smart enough to do one, then I would, I would encourage you to push, to keep pushing, to keep pushing and interrogate that as well. No, good point. Good, good, good point. I'm sorry to have um, diverted us from your. Oh, that that was lovely. Actually, I need to get that off my chest. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, about this. You, you, okay. By the way, um, folks may well know on on your channel, uh, which I'll put. Uh, Imam Tom, I, I was going to say is at the end this commercial uh, for you, but Imam Tom has a fantastic YouTube channel uh, entitled Itika Masjid, which I will link to in the description below. He has a video, a uh, controversial video, on the historical critical method if you want to hear uh, more of his views on this subject. Very good. Um, and so so we're tracing the, the shifts in knowledge, okay? So that's what Halak is talking about, the shifts in knowledge. Knowledge used to be a unity between morality and fact, okay? Yeah. And even the morality took center stage because what people are doing and how they're sort of um, attaining virtue or attaining to the afterlife is the most important thing that's going on, not how many planks were on Noah's Ark or, you know, this sort of thing. Um, but... The Enlightenment separates that. And therefore, since the Enlightenment separates knowledge you know, into fact on this side and morality on the other side, that affects how we conceptualize law. Yeah. And that results in what Halak call, calls the rise of the legal. Um, and this is something that he is claiming is fundamentally opposed and antagonistic to Islam and the Sharia. Um, so he goes to Hobbes and he talks about, you know, Hobbes asserted that... Wait, 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 wait. Uh, Imam Tahir. Hobbes. Who is this guy? Hang on. Wait, wait. Who is Hobbes? Uh, I mean, you you can inform. You know, uh, uh, you, we have the tradition of of you you kind of providing the background of Hobbes. I mean, he's the most one of the most famous political philosophers you know in the history of the yeah, European yeah. tradition. Hobbes is not some dude in America who you met. We share a name. We share uh, a name. Right this is true. That's about it, though. Uh, no, he was a, he was a, he was an Englishman, not a uh, an American, and. Um, in the, uh, I think, 17th century, uh, English uh, philosopher who wrote a very, very influential work on political philosophy called Leviathan, or Leviathan, Leviathan, which has actually come from the biblical word for whale, this kind of big whale that allegedly swallowed up Jonah. Anyway, I'm not going to go there, but it, 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 it really is seminal, it's absolutely foundational for perhaps a modern understanding of uh, the state and the law, as you're describing. So very influential um, English uh, philosopher whose work has ram ramifications down the centuries. Uh, yes. But I'm not going to go into a description of what the Leviathan is about because that will be another distraction. <laughs> I'm already guilty of one infraction. Sorry. Uh so Hobbes takes the separation between fact and value, and he basically, uh, you know, um, uh, 
carries out the implications of that onto law, saying that the only valid law is the will of the sovereign, however construed. Now, this yeah. is fairly radical and fairly different to what came before, because before you have the possibility that the sovereign or the political authority could issue a law, issue an edict, and it would be um, wrong. It would be immoral. It would be sort of not valid. Unscriptural against the commandments of God and contrary to the Bible. Yes, exactly. So there was a legal authority that was above that legal authority of the the sovereign or the the uh, the potentates or the the king or whatever it was. Yeah. But Hobbes stops that. He says, no, the only valid law is the law of the sovereign. Moral uh, morality and moral concerns, moral rules, are off in the private sphere, discovered by human reason. So he yeah. separates the legal from the moral. The moral is sort of something that you know people can talk about and uncover with their reason, and we'll talk about that in a second. Um, but it's separate from the legal. You don't have a sort of this uh, ability to criticize law that's issued from the sovereign. This is the championing of is, right? If you're going to go with the distinction that Halak draws between is and ought, Hobbes is basically saying, when it comes to law, don't worry about ought. Only The only thing that concerns us it w is what? is capital i if the sovereign or the government or the ruler issues an edict or issues a law that is valid and you know your moral scruples kind of be damned um so this is all sort of again this distinction carried over from the ideas of knowledge to the ideas of law look at where this has come if you want to look at a a, a very contemporary um illustration of this we see that the United States and other governments around the world, they benefit from human vice. Okay, We've, we've recently undergone the legalization of marijuana. Um, we have people who are championing the legalization of hard drugs, such as heroin and cocaine and things like that. Um, we have taxes on the legal sale of alcohol, even though at you know a uh, hundred and change years ago, we had a temperance movement that attempted to ban alcohol. We have the governments, the state governments are heavily invested in gambling heavily invested in the lottery um, and run commercials advertising their lottery. You know, there is no um, moral basis to this, right? It is completely, your moral concerns are considered private concerns. They differ from person to person. Perhaps you can use your own reason to come to them and be convicted in them, but there's no obligation for the law to be moral. And there's no way to necessarily criticize the law for being immoral. Okay, we can't necessarily just sit here. We would be criticized if we say, well, you know, it's not uh, it's not right. It's not right that the government profit off of these vices or profit off of drinking or gambling or smoking or these sorts of things. People would say, so what? It's your choice. It's your business. Right. It's like it's none of your business. People are free to choose. And so this is, I think, emblematic. This is uh, illustrative of this sort of sep fundamental separation between the legal and the moral. That started with Hobbes and then it was continued down to our day. Um, <clears throat> one of the other important things of this move to separate the moral into the private sphere, to put it not in the hands of the sovereign or the legal, but to put it rather in this arena of universal reason or people using their reason is that what is the arbiter of what's moral and what's not? Within this arrangement, the arbiter of morality is the self, as opposed to something outside of the self. Mm. Okay. Previously, we had scripture. We had even, you know, tradition. We can think of multiple things that were the anchor 
of morality. If it shaped your sensibility, and next chapter he'll get into technologies of the self and how this worked on the level of the subject. But the important thing for us to, to realize here is that the arbiter of morality is now residing in the self as opposed to outside of the self, which would be something like revelation. So not only is morality cleaved off and systematically separated from law and legal concerns, um, that the arbiter of what is considered moral is situated in the self. And obviously we know how that goes. We now have various wildly different moral sentiments between people um, and they get they seem to get further and further every day. The next yeah. step in this kind of um, intellectual genealogy comes with Nietzsche, actually. Um, so if we said that Hobbes is somebody who said, okay, there is an is and there is an ought, there is what is reality, real politic, law, and then there's this other thing, morality, that is, you know, you guys can figure it out on your own, but what's law is what is, then Nietzsche comes and denies the ought altogether, he right? He, he, he comes and says the only thing that is real is the is, is the what exists, right? right? And there are no moral, this is where nihilism comes from, There's right? There's no thing as truth with a capital P for Nietzsche. And, and, and even though what he says, uh, and I was reading a, a, a bit about him earlier, it is frankly repellent. <laughs> I mean, I find it repellent. But, but Nietzsche at least had the virtue of being disarmingly honest. Uh, he, he really worked through the implications of the trajectory that he saw at work in the world, in the West, I mean, around him and said, look, mm -hmm you know, this is what it means. This is where it's going. And he was a prophet of a kind, a secular prophet of the 20th century, even though he died in 1900, the very beginning of the 20th century, he foresaw very accurately, I think, the rise of postmodernism and all of these things that, well, I can, and, uh, Halak and yourself are discussing. So mm -hmm. he has a kind of prophetic quality. I mean that in a very secular way, yes. uh, but also um, a very, very toxic kind of ethos as well i think well like you said i mean he actually followed the distinction to its logical end which Sorry. a lot of people weren't really willing to do due to either yes. residual christianity or residual sort of morality yes. you know there's a lot of interesting commentary i've heard from uh from arabs about how you know a lot of arabs in in the nations that underwent rule by the bath party um, there's a certain population within the Arab world that looks back fondly on those days. Mm. And some people have, you know, because they were industrializing and the, the education was good and there was stability and Saddam Hussein built hospitals and roads. and <laughs> Exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah. But, but people have also pointed out that, well, that's true, but that's not necessarily attributable to the secular characteristic of, of the rule it's also attributable to the residual Islamic morality and ethos that was assumed in that society at that time. Yeah. So we still had this gravity, this anchor that was holding people back and holding order together and holding society together. As we've progressed through the decades and that sort of gravity and residue has been washed away, right? Then we see that the same problems in those places, you know, exist as in the West and even sometimes in, in worse ways, right? Yeah. So there's this kind of interesting, yes. Yeah. So I just want to say one final thing, uh, my, my hobby horse, uh, George Eliot, who's actually a, a woman called Mary Ann Evans in real life. George Eliot is probably mm -hmm. one of the greatest English novelists of all time. She wrote a book called Middlemarch, which is a fantastic book, often voted the best no English novel ever, actually. The reason I mention her randomly um, is because Nietzsche, or Nietzsche, as you, you call him, uh, uh, Nietzsche savaged her because they were alive at the same time. He was slightly later, right? For her, because she was an atheist, uh, 
Mary Ann Evans from George Eliot was an atheist mm -hmm. and she was fairly open about it in Victorian society in the middle of the 19th century in England and she met Charles Dickens once and he was a Christian but anyway um what he what Nietzsche savaged her for was even though she was an atheist her novels like Middlemarch and Mill on the Floss etc infused with Christian morality Christian ethos and he said look you're parasitical I'm paraphrasing now you're parasitical mm -hmm. on a Christianity that you mm. explicitly disavow and believe to be false. You, George Eliot, must be consistent. You must work through your atheism uh, and, and not produce novels that are basically uh, Christianized or Christian uh, icing on the cake. He thought that was disreputable and he was very critical of her. So this is the kind of uh, acidic effect that uh, Nietzsche's philosophy uh, has. Um, but on the other hand, at least George Eliot was imbued with Christian morality, which ennobled, I would say, ennobled and spiritually elevated her work, even though the metaphysics at the heart of it was empty, funnily enough. Um, and so I think Nietzsche was being a bit harsh. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really interesting connection. Yeah, Nietzsche was definitely the most consistent, we could say. He, he was consistent in his thought. So denying the ought uh, entirely and saying the only thing that is real is what is, and therefore yes. the rules are, there ain't no rules, and you, you know, uh, you 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 seize power, and and it is what it is, and you know, and, might might makes right. And guess what? Um, when Adolf Hitler came to power in 1932 in Germany, he was uh, presented with a complete copy of Nietzsche's philosophy by Nietzsche's sister, hmm. uh, and Nietzsche uh, was embraced in many ways as the official philosopher of the Third Reich. And you can see why. Yeah, that's not entirely surprising. All right, so so uh, the the usefulness of Nietzsche is that you know it shows how anti-Islamic this is at its core, right? And that anything I think short of Nietzsche is, um, you know, again, they're pulling from somewhere else. They're pulling from either residual Christian morals or or something or other, just to paper over the fact that the distinction that they've made between fact and value between what is and what ought to be uh, is completely anti-Islamic on one hand and immoral on the other. Yeah. Even, you know, Halak brings up the, the problem of translation. The word moral, right, is a very, very modern term like religion. And, and he doesn't go into a full genealogy of the term such as Esad does in his works about religion. But, you know, um, this idea of what is moral right, is, is a very, very new thing. Mm. In that, it used to be so much more embedded in our ideas of what yeah. must be that it was seen as inseparable from law, that it was already there together with our conceptualizations of um, of how things should be. <clears throat> Similarly, the sort of anachronistic translation of the moral in Arabic as akhlaq, right, um, he criticizes that. And I think he's he's completely correct to do that is that it's it's anachronistic in the fact that, or in the sense that it only applies to this very modern sense of morality, etiquette, manners that is separated in a paradigmatic way from fact, from law, from these sorts of things. And that's not what the Sharia is about. And that's not what Islam is about, right? In fact, if you were to try to conceive of a definition of what the Sharia is, we could say that it is the unity of law in the modern sense of what law is and morality. In what the modern sense is it's holistic it's holistic and at every level rather than atomistic separating out ought and is etc yeah yes exactly uh and so he calls it like a cosmo a cosmological uh morality right it's yeah. it's baked into 
your ontology, your, your what is, right? It's baked into your ways of knowing. Morality infuses every single consideration and every single thing that either prescriptively should be, like in the case of law, you should do this, you should do that, or what is when it comes to your relationship with the mountains and the trees and the water and you know what we call natural resources, right? So um, some people get it wrong and they, when they, they hear this sort of uh, genealogy of, of concepts and terms and they think, well, that's not true. We still have morality these days in the West and, you know, like there's sort of moral considerations, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But they don't under appreciate Halak's point that we're talking about a paradigmatic, right, mor morality, a morality that is so central and thick and deep in what we're doing that it's not even able to be distinguished from what is legal in the first place. Mm -hmm. That's what Halak is getting at. And that's his, what he's, his argument is mm -hmm. as to what the pre-modern, uh, the pre-modern period was about and also what Islam is all about. And that brings us to the lovely quote that both of us, both of us <laughs> serendipitously uh, had both planned on, on reading. Um, but I would love if you could share it with us. Funny, before of, we, uh, we started the recording, uh, I, I said to, Imam Tom, I've got this great quote, uh, and uh, he said it's not on page eighty-nine by any chance. I said, yes, it is. <laughs> so we both um, uh, both alighted on the same passage. Um, and so I'm gonna, now going to read it as prearranged. Um, um, it's quite a, a chunky, um, complex paragraph, um, but it is what it is. But I think it's a very good. Uh, sometimes his writing does get above the. Um, his usual last time, most anymore. Paradigmatic modern law, he writes, is positive law, the command of the fiction of sovereign will. Islamic law is not positive law, but substantive, principle based, atomistic rules that are pluralist in nature and ultimately embedded, this word again that you use, in a cosmic moral imperative. For Muslims today to adopt the positive law of the state, in other words, the Western understanding and its sovereignty means in no uncertain terms, the acceptance of a law emanating from political will, a law made by men who change their ethical and moral standards as modern conditions require. So we see morality constantly changing in the West as men f see fit to just to change it by parliament or by Senate or whatever it is. It is to accept, he writes, that we live in a cold universe that is ours to do with as we like. It is to accept that the ethical principles of the Quran and of centuries old morally based Sharia be set aside in favor of changing man-made laws, laws that have, be, that have sanctioned nothing less than the domination and destruction of the very nature God has given humankind to enjoy, with moral responsibility. Back to Genesis 1 again. So that's me saying that bit. Whether to accept or not to accept is a question that only Muslims can answer for themselves. Our own point, however, is that, observed from a distance, Muslims have very little reason to opt for the modern state's law when they have enjoyed a legal culture that has insisted for more than 12 centuries on a law paradigmatically structured and fleshed out by an overarching moral source. End quote. That's page 89 of The Impossible State. Sometimes his prose is very elevated. Mm -hmm. 
Yes. So, and that's a wonderfully illustrative and, and representative quote of, of Halak's main point in this chapter, why the modern state is anti-Islamic and anti-moral, because its conception of law is completely different. Okay. Law in the modern state is fundamentally, inherently, paradigmatically divorced from moral concerns. And a Muslim who believes in the normative Islam should want none of that, right? We should want a law that is, we can't simply just take on this modern state with its definition of law and expect that we're going to achieve something Islamic. Okay. In- I'm going to push back on this because I think there's a common sense objection to what mm-hmm. he is saying, what you are saying. Yeah. The modern state is, is not uh, it's not against morals in that, you know, uh, the, the routine sense are, are in criminal courts in Britain and America and France and so on do uh, operate uh, mm-hmm. or try and operate on the principles of justice. Now, justice mm-hmm. is a moral virtue. So that uh, so if a criminal you know steals something, I can go to court and I can ask for justice in in in, uh, uh, in punishment. Now that that is a, that's a moral framework, mm-hmm, but um, so that, that is real and exists in the West, and that's just one example. Um, but Halak is making a slightly more yes philosophical point. But it'd be wrong to conclude if anyone was concluding, by the way, that um, uh, uh, Halak is saying that the West doesn't have any moral compass at all in its legal or uh, other other institutions. He's not saying that. He's saying something slightly different, isn't he? Yes. Yeah. So Halak is saying that basically the morality that exists within a modern state is is minimalist. Okay. It's thin. It's calculated upon utilitarian logic okay um the example that you brought is is good because um we're talking about somebody hurts somebody else okay that goes to court but if somebody breaks somebody else's heart right like that's not a legal issue right well neither is it in the sharia okay but the point is that there's not a sense of aspiration when it comes to the moral perfection of the individual there's only sort of a bare minimum of things that you should not do, right? Like that's the kind of conception of morality and that's because it has been sidelined. It has been, you know, marginalized in the sense that it's not the central domain as Halak would say. It's not the central concern. It's not a systematic concern of the modern state. It's still there. It's It has to be there. Human life cannot exist without any sort of morality or no morality at all. But it's very much sidelined comparatively. Like we're talking about quantitatively or qualitatively as well, with pre-modern forms of governance in which it was much more central, much more uh, paradigmatic, much more there in your face. And it wasn't just about bare minimums and you know you only get brought before the court um, you know, if you really, really messed up and did something bad, but there's a sense of aspiration, right? Mm-hmm. This, the, the government and the, the ruler and the entire society is geared towards gears, it, excuse me, it is geared towards producing a, a type of moral ideal okay that is based around concerns of of morality and ethics and things like that yeah. which is more of what he gets into in, in the next chapter chapter five I think that, that, the way you phrased it is is just right, just right. Yeah. Yeah. so that brings us to um so again that comes back to definition of law halak is saying that the definition of law has changed and any sort of islamic governance cannot accept the modern definition of law if it is to be truly islamic the second argument that he puts forth in this chapter is the called the, the rise of the political. So he's going to make a very, very similar argument, but instead of focusing on the legal, he's going to focus on the political, that politics have also been separated from morality in a very systematic, paradigmatic way, 
that has negative consequences, consequences that render the definition of politics according to the modern state as something that necessarily runs up and uh, is an affront to Islam and the Sharia. He says that power in the modern state is the, is the new god. Okay, that's that's his claim. And he says that based off of this idea of the distinction. If we're going to separate facts from value, we're going to separate what is from what ought to be, then what is politics? Politics is no longer geared towards what we were just saying, the production of a moral individual, the mm. uh, ob obtainment of, of salvation and the afterlife, right? Um, taking care of one's moral obligation to their creator and being a steward of God's green earth and doing everything that God would have you do. Now, in the modern era of the distinction, politics exists for its own sake, okay? Uh, power, not morality, guides politics. Uh, this is what we could call the political age. If you look at the map, right? Everybody from grade school, they have their map and, you know, the United States is all one solid color green and, you know, the UK is all one solid color purple. And that's the way that people are used to thinking about things. They're used to thinking about things through these nation states. And what that communicates to people or the lines that gets them thinking along are very identitarian, okay? Mm. As opposed to principle-based. Okay, and yeah. we, see, you know, so, so people are going to be—they're constantly engaged if it's if it's politics, and if politics is power, and if politics is divorced from morality, it's no longer about doing the right thing, mm. adhering to principles. It's about, well, what is my party saying? What's the other party not saying? Right, yeah. and we see that today. I mean, party politics is dominated by the frenzy to score points against the other side at Trying, all costs. Yeah. Where will you find a politician admitting that the other party got something right? And maybe, you know, that, that's interesting. I'll take that home and think about it. I never thought about it that way. You won't find it, right? It mm -hmm. doesn't exist because each side is so invested in their political identity. And we can blow that up also to the level of the nation state as well, whether it's the United States mm -hmm. versus China or the United States versus yeah. Russia, or the UK versus, you know, anyone, right? They're so invested in proving their side right and proving the other side wrong so so when we when we the west britain america involved in torturing people which we have been black sites or locking people up with the due process guantanamo bay and so on and so on this is soft pedaled or explained away or justified in some way on x grounds but if Russia does it or someone else, oh, my God, they're evil bastards. And, you know, they, 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 we must denounce them and bring them to international tribunals and get them to pro prosecute. So you get a very lopsided sense of mm -hmm. we're not dealing with a with justice as a principle that is applied as such, but in a very partisan way. But I, I want to mention another example. Even I remember when, when I was very, very young, um, politicians, political leaders in this in the UK, if they were had discovered to commit adultery, as some were, were forced to resign on principle. Because if they couldn't be trusted with their wives and their neighbors' wives, then how could we entrust them with ruling the country? Now that changed. I don't remember when, but I do. I do vaguely remember it did change when it was decided that it, the the so-called private affairs of someone and, and Islamically, there's some point to this, but it's not quite what I'm getting at here. Um, if someone had committed adultery, it became known that was not a resigning offense. But what would be? is if they committed financial irregularities, if they committed fraud, for example. That was seen as a resigning uh, matter, but not uh, uh, infidelity or uh, sleeping around or adultery. So he, here we have, uh, as, as you put it, the minimalizing of uh, ethical standards, 
to the absolute minimum. So now you can be a philanderer, you can be, be a person of disreputable character, it doesn't really matter, as long as it's not to do with financial irregularities, you can keep your job as a government minister. Um, mm -hmm. And that was quite consciously done, that decision, in, I don't know, 10 years ago or something. Yeah. No, it shows, the, again, the residual sort of Christian values, I think, that we're still holding on for a long time. But it yeah. also shows our assumptions about, again, fact and value, what is real and what's not. Because at mm -hmm. the end of the day, what's real is the economy, right? right? What's real is science. Those are fact. Whereas sure. morality is, oh, well, you have, you know, you use your reason and you believe in your beliefs and your religion. And I believe in my religion and we can be different. Maybe you're a swinger. Maybe you're a, you know, you dress up in, in crazy, you know, animal costumes or whatever. That's your thing, right? These are all considered as, as you said, private choices, mm. but it's the separation of that moral from the, the real, right? Mm. Which allows that sort of wiggle room is that it's something that's seen as non-essential or at least not ultimately capital T true. Yeah. Um, Yes, exactly. So, so the political age has us thinking along lines of identity, and obviously, this is condemned in the Quran. Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, through Surah Al-Baqarah and Al Imran, consistently criticizes the you know the nations that went before us for this sort of sectarianism, this groupthink, and this identitarian sort of way of relating to things. You know, they're not. They've come to the point where they're no longer willing to follow the truth because it goes against the narrative of group superiority and supremacy that they have constructed for themselves, right? When uh, this is what set up the Jews to reject Jesus as a prophet and also what set up the, the Christians to reject Muhammad as a prophet, is that they had put all of their self-worth in their identity as being God's chosen people, which yeah. is identitarian, right? At, to the point where then they were no longer capable of submitting to the truth when it came. They were no longer able to follow principle they were mm -hmm. merely relating on identity. So that's the name of the game now. When we have the colors on the map, um, it gets you to identify with the color. And identification is the main point, I think, of Halak in this in this uh, part of the book, is that um, the nation, okay, well, there's two things going on. One is that that colored map gives you a sense of all-pervading ownership. Okay, so the state owns everything inside of that territory. Right. Mm -hmm. Even if the map is not the terrain, in reality, we have wild forests and places, places nobody has even been or no human has even walked. And yet the map tells a different story. The map implies that the state controls and owns and possesses all of it. Um, and then the second thing is it gets us again to think about ourselves through that identity. And that identity is the citizen, the citizen of the nation state. The nation becomes a way of life. Mm. And that's, you know, we see that with the sense of what is French, right? If you, sure, you're more familiar than I am with that, with things that are seen to be against French values or for French values or or emblematic of Frenchness. And the hijab is not French, right? In the United States, we talk about the American way, right? Pulling yourself up by the bootstraps and rugged individualism and this sort of frontier mentality. Every nation has its own sort of, uh, you know, ideas and stories and, and myths. But the idea that the nation is more than just a government or that the state is more than just a government. It's the representation of a nation and that nation is a way of life. It gets you to identify with that state in new ways, unprecedented ways, Halak says, is that before, if we're talking about the Abbasids or the Umayyads, right, the average person is not identifying with their government in that sort of way, in that with, with that sort of thickness, right? They're not ready to uh, go to war and sacrifice their lives for the Umayyads. 
for the Umayyad dynasty, right? They're willing to go to jihad. They're willing to defend their family. They're willing to defend their homeland, maybe their tribe, right? To, but to be called through the logic of a nation state and be said that your way of life is under threat, right? And you go to um, you know American political history, this is a common theme, right? With 9-11 and before it with, you know, the Vietnam War and, you know, all the sort of things throughout the Cold War and even World War II, the common refrain is that your way of life is being under threat. What is that way of life? It's considered to be represented through the nation and governed and protected by the state, right? This is very different than just showing up and voting, okay? The state makes more demands on you than that. It asks mm -hmm. you to identify yourself with it and thus to be ready to sacrifice and pay the ultimate sacrifice for it when the time comes. So Halak talks about conscription, right? Sacrifice for the purpose of the state, not for God, not for homeland, not for family, not for principle, but simply for the state. The state said that this is what we're involved in now. It's us against them. It's the good guys versus the bad guys. You have to pay the ultimate price. You get conscripted. You get drafted. Draft dodging is, is punishable, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, in, in the United States, we had this famous sort of period of our history in the Vietnam War when the draft was was taking place and everybody from that generation, my father's generation, has their own stories related to the draft. And some people fled the country because and, they and didn't. Ahmed Ali, famously, of course, uh, yes. George the draft, shall we say, mm -hmm. on very, very publicly and in a very principled way, saying, well, these people are my enemies. Why, why, why am I required to go and kill these people? Right. What have they done to me? You know, it was quite disarming, his argument, actually. But he yes. was, yeah, he, you know, he, he was uh, punished, of course. Exactly. And the fact, so, so let's compare the two. The fact that adultery is not punishable within the system, mm -hmm. yet dr dodging a draft is punishable within the system. That that illustrates all that we need to know about the point that Halak is making between what politics has become in the modern state. Mm. It's there is no purpose higher than the state. It's for its own sake, its own interests, national interests. We talk about all the time, right? Mm. Everything mm. within international relations. It's all about well, that's against our national interests, or we have national interests over here. It's a supposedly self-evident justification for whatever you're doing. Yeah. very different from considerations of morality. Well, what if your natural interest is completely immoral? Yeah. Literally, nobody's it's going to ask that question. It's natural interest to open Guantanamo Bay, to lock up lots of people who we've kidnapped off those streets in the world, lock them up forever, and never bring them to trial, never give them rights. It's in the national national security. That's the other same thing. Yes, national interest, you. national security, justifies. It can justify any anything uh, by this magic wand, which suddenly makes it legitimate and accepted. Yes, exactly. And so we compare this with something pre-modern like jihad, for example, and we see that they're completely different, mm -hmm. right? Because there's no punishment in the Sharia for dodging jihad, right? If somebody was going to stay home and, and say that they were sick or lie or, or, or flee, right? There's, there's no Sharia punishment for, for dodging jihad. And so this is another sort of illustrative point. It's like, look at how the, I, the sense of politics is supreme. Okay, mm. and it's been divorced from these moral sort of constraints, at least from the perspective of the modern state, they were constraints where they actually kept it in check. They're an extremely important balance to um, making this thing have a purpose. Now it's not a purpose, it's not purposeful anymore. It's merely just for its own sake, what for its own sake, whatever the modern state deems as good and true and right and justifiable, like you said, if we have to torture, we torture. If we have to use an atom bomb, we use an atom bomb. If we have to, you know, use depleted uranium bullets, napalm, 
nerve gas, chlorine, whatever it is, if it's for national security, mm. killing our own citizens, right? It's happened with drones. It's happened, right? Inve creating a registry for Muslims. It happens, right? If it's in the interest of national security, that's enough to make it good. That's enough to make it right. Mm. There's nothing that's a moral argument that you can say that would really, I mean, yes, there are moral criticisms of it, but they don't have the teeth that the idea of national security and national interests have. If mm. it did have the teeth, then we would be able to take it to court and say, look, this is immoral. And then the judge would be like, oh yeah, you're right. Actually, it is kind of immoral, right? Mm. They talk about morality. If you read the, the, the opinions of the Supreme Court justices, they will talk about morality. There is residue there of morality, but it's not systematic. It's not paradigmatic. It's been marginalized. It doesn't have the ability to trump Okay, the, the national security concerns. No, no, no pun there intended, of course. <laughs> you emphasize this word Trump and overriding national... Sorry, I couldn't resist that. That's, 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 <laughs> exactly. And so this is this is what Halak wants us to see, and I guess we'll, we'll end on this. Just as the definition and the conception of the legal changed from pre-modern life to modern life, okay? And that definition or conception of legal sidelined what is moral. And mm. if you're a serious Muslim and you want Islamic governance, you cannot just accept that definition of legal. Right. It's it's un-Islamic. He says the same thing for politics. If you're interested in Islamic governance, you cannot simply adopt the nation state because the nation state has a conception of politics that exists for its own sake. Okay. Mm. Like mm. so, it will continue if if you make you know uh, the Islamic nation of you know Thomas Dan tomorrow, right? And, but if it's really a, a nation state, it's really a modern state behind it, it will seek to preserve itself for its own stake, for mm. its own sake, despite moral concerns, despite mm. Sharia concerns, right? Because the whole idea of politics is the modern idea of politics. It's been divorced from morality in a systematic, paradigmatic way, and therefore is completely un-Islamic and immoral. Gosh. But uh, a, a very strong ending. And we've been uh, discussing this book, The Impossible State, uh, Islam, Politics and Modernity's Moral Predicament, emphasizing very much the subtext there of the moral predicament. Um, I, I would also like just to mention uh, um, his other books. This is Halleck's other books, uh, The Introduction to Islamic Law, which uh, is apparently very good. I've not read it yet. Um, and I've not read this one either. This is on my to-do reading list. Uh, Restating Orientalism, a Critique of Modern Knowledge. Um, and when I finish uh, Edward Said's book on Orientalism, which I'm reading at the moment, I intend to read this, uh, which uh, is in some ways a critique of uh, that book, I'm told. So a very important critique of it. Hopefully that will be the next book we do, inshallah. After. Inshallah. Well, that, that'll be amazing. If we could go through that. That'll be uh, absolutely amazing. Yeah. This is should be thicker as well. <laughs> yeah. um, and juicier as well. And, and we do know that Professor Halak actually does watch um, these programs. Uh, with you, uh, Imam Tom, on blogging theology. Um, I've been told by someone who knows him very well. So, alhamdulillah, um, uh, um, hopefully we haven't, I'm sure we haven't misrepresented his thought, but he, he does enjoy seeing his work discussed as well, I'm pleased to say. Alhamdulillah. I'm not to mention that publicly, but I don't think it's a big secret, but he, he does. <laughs> alhamdulillah. Good. Well, um, thank you very much indeed, Imam Tom, for your time. And I, I know uh, what you say is enormously popular with uh, the viewers and appreciated. Uh, so, Hamzila, thank you very much indeed for that. And um, until next time. My pleasure. Look forward to it. Take care. Take Bye.